Hey, good morning. You are listening to Breakfast Bites, and I'm Felicia King. And today's show, I'm going to answer, well, I'm just going to call it like popular questions that I've had from IT service providers or IT departments and, you know, basically people in the IT industry with regards to services like Noxoc, XDR, SOAR, and you're like, oh my goodness, what is this stuff? Well, I will explain some of these things and drive a lot of clarity because I feel like there's a lot of, oh my goodness, there's a lot of misunderstandings out there. And those misunderstandings very much so are derived from a bifurcation between a check the box exercise, such as like, let's say an organization has a cybersecurity insurance requirement that says we need to have a sock. Okay. Then they just go and they look for a sock and probably with 98% probably the people actually doing the sock evaluation are not capable of actually running a sock themselves. So they're probably starting with an improper set of evaluation criteria for what should and should not be included in that SOC service and what the paradigm around it is. Okay. So, so on one side of the coin, you got what is called theater, right? A check the box exercise. And then on the other side, it's, we're really trying to drive serious outcomes of real risk mitigation. And There can be a middle ground where it's like part theater and part effective, but I think that organizations definitely need to be very clear about their articulable needs. Uh, And when push comes to shove, you finally get the right questions to the right people in an organization. Oftentimes, they will actually give you the real answer, which is that they were looking for theater. They were looking for a check-the-box exercise. I had a very large organization uh, ask me to do a proposal for them to do a written information security plan. And the very first thing that I asked them was, are you looking for WISP in name only, or are you actually looking for an actionable plan that aligns with the reality of your organization, technical controls, and a you know gaps analysis at the end of it. And they're like, oh no, we're just we're looking for WISP theater. <laughs> so you know, you have to realize that that concept can be extended to, you know, NOC, SOC, MDR, XDR, EDR, EPDR, and you know, shake a stick at it, right? Everything else. And I just want to really, really draw some severe attention to a major factor. Uh, If you listen to the last show, the last Breakfast Bites, we talked about how establishing requirements properly results in the best outcomes. And that's going to be true across the board. I don't care whether you're designing a house you're deciding what door you're going to put on your house, what car do I buy, what microwave do I buy, or what service do I need for IT and who my IT service provider is. And, you know, I mean, it's like, it's always going to be the same. You need to have a clear, defined, established set of requirements. And only from that can you then do an evaluation. Okay, so let's dig a little bit deeper into this. Because I can tangent back to this topic of the differentiation between like what really then is the real SOC paradigm? Because I think we need to we need to really cover that. 
But let's first start with some of these requirements. And I got a question from another IT service provider who is a one-person organization. And uh, they were inquiring about liability, like what happens in the context that one of their customers gets compromised? Okay. So whose liability is it? And this hopefully should be very clear to everybody. And here's what it comes down to. The liability rests with the client in almost every case, except in the circumstance that there was a clear statement of work where an IT service provider was providing a clear service rather than, you know, bespoke, just take care of everything for us, whatever. And we're just so unstructured because that is definitely the case that a lot of organizations are just so severely unstructured. And they oftentimes want to do things with their in-house IT department. And then they want to do things like co-managed IT, which is just... (laughs) I laugh because it's very rare for co-managed IT to actually work effectively. There's a perception that organizations have where it's like, well, we're going to have our internal IT people take care of this because, you know, we trust them. They're our employees and, you know, they cost less. And it's like, well, no, actually they don't cost less. Most of the time what they're doing is causing problems for you that are going to be a lot more expensive to clean up. And the reason for that is because there isn't a manager in that organization who can run an IT services company. So, you know, we get back to requirements, right? How do you define your requirements for a SOC? And then how do you evaluate your requirements for a SOC? Well, it's going to take somebody with the capability of being able to run a SOC to do that evaluation. Everybody else is not going to be making a, a true, real good evaluation criteria. Same thing happens when you're talking about internal IT. Most of the time, what I find is internal IT is not run by someone that actually knows how to run an IT department and lead a team of people, IT people, grow them, run budgets, do lifecycle asset management, do third-party information security risk management, and, you know, the 500,000 other things that a CTO or a CISO or a CIO would need to do. And I've even seen a lot of chaos come from organizations that do have a CTO and a CISO. (laughs) And that often happens when they are not peers. You get silly things like an organization will have the CISO report to the CTO. And that, you know, I mean, depending upon who the people are, that could work. But that's that's more a function of the people than the structure. So anyways, we get down to this whole point of people are very concerned about like, well, you know, I, I need to have somebody to blame. Like whose responsibility is it if poo-poo happens? Well, let me give you some great examples, real world examples. I'm always going to use real world examples here. Let's say that IT service provider is managing an M365 tenant for the client, but the client's internal IT also has admin access to the tenant. And there is no SOC agreement. Nobody's officially responsible. And out of the goodness of the heart of the IT service provider, they're doing monitoring of security events. And they end up finding out that internal IT is disabling MFA on users and not 
turning it back on properly, not enrolling them in MFA, not doing validations. And so, you know, the end, the end result effect is you have users that when the user accounts were created, they had MFA, but then internal IT disabled it and it's not re-enabled. So who just created the problem? Well, internal IT did. Well, who's going to hold who accountable? I mean, I can tell you straight up, I think pretty much the IT service provider is the only people that actually care about that. And unless executive management team wants to have that kind of reporting and then wants to go like, oh, okay, well, our internal IT department is obviously doing things they shouldn't be doing and they sure as heck should know better, we're now going to take away their rights. I've never seen it. I've never seen them do that. And the reason I've never seen them do that is because they care more about what they think is the cost of service compared to the cost of the outcome. So again, whose liability is it? It's the client. It's the client's liability at that point in time. Let's take another example. So let's say, again, good example, sticking on the same, the same line of thinking. Whose liability is it when personnel internally in, that, in the client company engage in clicking on links that they then put their M365 credentials in and the next thing you know, there's a credential theft situation? Whose liability and responsibility of, is that? All right. Well, what's root cause analysis on it? Root cause analysis tells you a few things. SMS is being used as an MFA mechanism and it's very, very weak. It should be disabled. And the IT service provider probably told the, the company, the client company, that SMS should be allowed to be disabled, but the client company is not authorizing that change. So now there's a weakness introduced in the system because of that. Let's say the client company has been provided cybersecurity awareness training for all staff for more than 12 months, but they don't actually enforce the adherence to it or the deep, rich participation in it as part of a real risk mitigation approach. Notice I'm drawing the distinction between theater and real risk mitigation. And so that staff member, had they actually gone through the cyber awareness training, they, I mean, I can't believe for a second that they would have actually like fallen for this credential compromise situation because a bunch of the training actually addresses that exact use case. And then a third root cause analysis piece ends up finding out that the web content filtering, which is the protection for things like people click on links and can they get to malware websites? Okay, that's an example of what web content filtering is for. Let's say internal IT has actually defeated the security protections in place for that. So again, whose liability is it? Well, it's clearly the client's liability. So this, the picture I'm painting for you is part of the challenges associated with co-managed IT and how the client has the liability. Unless we're talking about a circumstance where the IT service provider has full and exclusive control over the configuration and they have the ability to enforce policies in alignment with security risk mitigation approaches, you, you could even stipulate a framework like CL, CIS alignment, for example. Unless the IT service provider is in that level of power, then 
they don't have the liability. Right. So let's say a client hires an IT service provider to manage, you know, network layer security for them, but then the client is constantly claiming that they need to be able to access insecure resources from systems that should be deemed secure. Great example of that is TikTok. TikTok is could not possibly be deemed as something appropriate to be accessing from the same computer that significant financial transactions are being done from, whether we're talking about payroll or banking, let's say health data and so forth. You know, they pretty much the entire world seems to understand the segmentation necessity at this point. However, it is an inconvenience to the staff of the company. And unless the company has a an acceptable use policy and has the staunch support of an executive management team to adhere strongly to an established policy, then it's just going to be, you know, VIPs are allowed to do what they want to do. And, you know, whoever is the people who are going to pitch a fit the most are going to be the ones who will be provided exceptions. And that is exactly why and how I am frequently see internal IT just completely disabling security. Like there was a, an old client that we had, they, the owner of the business, instead of choosing to learn how to use his computer, he wanted the IT guy to just defeat all the security protections entirely so that you know, this guy could use his computer and he just didn't want to learn how to use a computer effectively or securely at all. And so everybody else in the company was doing things in a reasonably okay fashion, but because this was the owner of the business and because he was just so inflexible and his worldview was that his convenience was more important than the security of the data of the company. And that is a really, really bad, bad thought process. Because what you need to be thinking about is you're going to be inconvenienced, yes, but wouldn't you prefer to be inconvenienced at a slow pace at a time of your choosing in little tiny itsy bitsy pieces as opposed to like the one ginormous huge inconvenience that involves you, you know, losing $30,000 an hour, you know, because you're no longer in charge of your bus because the bad guys took charge of your bus. So now you're not driving the bus anymore. They're driving it. They decided who was going to get on the bus and where the bus was going to stop and what the cargo was and even the color of the bus and everything else. Right. And you may never get your bus back. So, so this concept of these questions that I get asked where it's like, well, I mean, what's my benefit if I buy through an MSSP? And it's like, you really have to think about this process in terms of you don't get to shift liability. That's not how it works. There is no liability shift. Okay. You are either fully in control or you're being you know, and you're on your own. So you're either fully in control and you're on your own 
and you're going to have to figure out everything on your own. And sure, you've got like maybe break fix support from maybe the software hardware manufacturer, but there's no strategic guidance there. There's no security advisory. There's really no depth of bench there. It's very rare for an IT service provider company to have CISOs, security architects, and cybersecurity engineers on staff that have more than 30 years of experience very, very, very rare. So what I mean by that is that the vast majority of IT service providers do not have the bench of personnel to be able to do the the R&D and the product evaluation and write the SOPs and to do all of the hardening and to come up with the security remediation, protection, configuration, you know, what are the best practices standards? And the manufacturer of the software or hardware does not always produce some sort of a guide. In fact, in most cases, I would say they don't. And you can't always just do some sort of a blanket pivot over to something like CIS and say, well, that's what we're going to use. So where's the liability? Well, if you're the IT service provider and you have a client, I don't even think that it matters necessarily from a legal perspective. I think it matters mostly from a relationship and a perception perspective. And if we think about why is it that people end up in court, well, they're ending up in court because they couldn't resolve their conflict in any other way. So clearly the goal should be to not have conflict go to that level. So where do you, how do you get there? Well, you need to have very clear articulation of paradigms and put guardrails and boundaries and things like, you know, roles and responsibilities matrices together. However, that does require a client to want to be operationally mature, even if they're not right now, but they've got to actually want that. The concept of a client just basically taking stuff and like lobbing it over the wall uh, and at the IT service provider and not engaging in a shared responsibility model, that's something that doesn't work. And I, and I don't care whether they have internal IT or not. They're, the day and age that says that you can just have this one throat to choke that you want, that, that day is gone. It's gone. You have to have the shared responsibility model. And that shared responsibility is between the client and the IT service provider. So the client has to have policies. The client has to do the HR enforcement. I mean, you've heard me say before that over 90% of problems from my perspective are HR management enforcement issues. There is no like IT technical control that can fix a lot of the problems that exist. I mean, you could in some cases, but the backlash would be so strong, hard, and fast that it'd be like a career-ending event you know, or what they call a, a career limiting event and all, where somebody just completely spazzes out like, what do you mean I can't do that anymore? You know, where did you get your authorization to do that? Not, this is why you hear me talk so much about policy, 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 right? When you, when you understand that something like, gee, having SMS enabled for uh, a multi-factor authentication method for an Office 365 tenant is really not a very secure approach. And you have reason to know that it has been an exploit vector against your particular tenant. 
then the executive management team, you know, needs to make a decision about that. We're either just going to eat the risk or we're going to mitigate the risk because ignoring it and do nothing is not an option. You've been made aware of risk. So you're now either just going to eat it or you're, you're going to actually mitigate that risk. And so, you know, how would you address that? Well, that should be addressed by sending an email out to all staff by the executive management team saying, well, guess what? Uh, in a week, SMS's multi-factor authentication method is going to be destroyed. It's not going to work anymore. Therefore, within the next seven days, open up a support ticket with the IT department for any assistance you need in getting properly enrolled into multi-factor authentication with TOTP and so forth. However, do not just call the IT department and expect them to do things for you. You need to be part of the solution yourself. As an end user staff member of this company, you are expected to use the online knowledge base. You're expected to know how to authenticate properly and how to use things like Microsoft Authenticator. You are expected to know how to use the company password manager, and you really need to have tried deeply to make use of the online training resources that IT has provided to us before, before you cry for help. IT cannot be a hand-holding operation. This must be a shared responsibility model, and this is going to be true. I don't care what the project is, whether it's uh, somebody trying to figure out how to MFA enroll properly, or they're trying to use a phone system, or they're trying to use you know, OneNote or OneDrive or whatever the heck it happens to be. There, is, there should be an online knowledge base, and staff should go there. They should find the pertinent articles. They should read them. They should do their best to try to be independent and to solve these problems on their own, being part of the solution by doing their own education. If the staff don't do training, then their productivity is going to be less. So I hear pushback from managers where managers are like, well, I mean, it's expensive payroll for me to have people do training. That's like, no, no, you don't know what expensive payroll is. Expensive payroll is your people being 50% capacity of what they should be because they're not using any of the technology that the company has provided them in an efficient or effective manner. You know, that's, that's what's expensive. That like little five minutes a day of training, that's not expensive. Or, you know, you could say half an hour once a week of some training, whatever that number is. But it needs, it can't be, I'm going to do training once a year. That doesn't work. Certainly not with anything that has to do with information security risk management. That needs to be a weekly thing. Uh, even just phone systems. You know, let's say you're getting a new phone system. Yeah, you got to knuckle down and actually go through the documentation. Like I'll tell you, one that was completely hilarious was had somebody who was like, I think my phone is broken. Really? What's going on with your phone? Well, it, it's dark. What happens if you pick up a handset? Oh, well, it lights the screen lights up. Okay. But then it goes dark. I'm like, yeah, it's called a screensaver. You know, your computer does that too, right? Your computer has a screensaver. And and so instead of 
this person really having, you know, doing some testing, like pick up the handset, make a call, call their, call their extension from another extension, you know, instead of testing it, they didn't test it. All they did was say, well, my phone is broken just because I had a screensaver on it and they didn't understand what a screensaver on a desk phone is. So desk phones nowadays are basically like miniature computers. I mean, look at, look at your cell phone. Your cell phone has a screensaver. Why would a desk phone be any different than a, than a cell phone? Of course, it's going to have a screensaver. But that needs to be part of that shared responsibility model. So instead of just getting grumpy about something being different from what it was before in the shared responsibility model, the end users need to make time in their schedule and the managers need to support that effort of people making time in their schedule in order to be able to do that training, right? So, so again, I, I, you know, you may be thinking, well, gee, that's not really on this whole sock conversation. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> because in order for sock to be effective, the people running the sock, the people executing the sock service for that customer, they need to know the people of that company. They need to know the politics of that company, the policies of that company. They need to be the same people that have the security configuration controls of that company. So much problems come from having distance between the people doing knock and sock versus, you know, and the customer. Okay. So you want as little distance there as possible, which is the same reason why you don't want to have one team of people managing the network and another team of people managing Office 365 and another team of people managing, you know, the surveillance system and then another team of people managing the phone system, you know, and security is about interaction effect and you can't have a complete security picture if you don't have visibility into what's happening at the network layer, the cloud layer, the endpoint layer, the server layer, et cetera, right? You know, what's the identity layer? And you have to have that visibility. And I get into arguments with people who think that a third-party, completely dedicated SOC, that, that like that's all they do. So all they do is sock, and they're supposed to somehow be really good at it. I don't see it. Not out of the enterprise space. I mean, if if you're up in the enterprise space and you got like ten thousand employees and you want to have a dedicated sock, you go right on ahead because you got ten thousand employees. You might have thirteen thousand computers. You might have five hundred servers. You know, by all means, go ahead and run a dedicated sock if you want. Where that's all that those people do. For everybody else. It doesn't make any sense because 98% of the time, these other organizations don't actually have a regulatory requirement to have an official dedicated SOC service that's, you know, 24 hours a day staffed by, you know, supposedly SOC certified engineers, which, you know, there is no standard for that. I'll just have, you know, there's, there, there is no standard for that. And if somebody is like, yeah, our team comes from working from the NSA. That means nothing to me. Absolutely nothing to me. Most of the time when I encounter red team people who are like SOC people, they don't know anything about blue team. 
they don't know how to mitigate or how to prevent. Uh, they don't understand the politics side. They don't understand the CISO CTO side. And they are just another piece that is eating a piece of the pie at the table. And I don't think they're adding any value. Now, there's a lot of MSPs out there, a lot of IT service providers who, you know, puff up their chest and go like, I got, I got an external sack. Well, good for you. When poo hits the fan, whose liability is it? It's going to be yours. And by you having distance between your client's environment and you know the SOC service, if you were actually selling them a SOC service, and unless the client really had a very, very clearly disclosed understanding of what was and what was not in that SOC service, customer could end up very easily with an impression that the IT service provider has that liability because the IT service provider sold the SOC service to them. So there's this whole push to like white label resell stuff that they that the you know that the IT service provider isn't really doing. And we don't do that. Okay, at QPC we don't do that. We don't like white label resell stuff we're not doing. We're not reselling somebody else's services. So I would encourage everybody to be very thoughtful to, regardless of whatever contracts say and all of that, you have to be very first and foremost thoughtful to perception management with your customers. And that perception perception management dictates that you need to have your customers in a position where they're making very, very informed risk decisions. So that means you've got to have disclosure. Hey, this is what is and is not included. And your master services agreement should say, well, unless it's specifically listed as included, well, then it's excluded, right? It's kind of like the way the U.S. Constitution is written, where it's like, unless it's specifically enumerated here, it's left up to the states, okay? That's how the Constitution works. It's it's default deny, okay? <laughs> so that's one of my favorite attributes of the Constitution, is that it's a everything else is left up to the states as it should be. So there is this desire and perception to do what's what's called liability shifting. And in effect, it doesn't work. Most of the time, what I find is that counterparty risk is being added. You have to do so much due diligence on the the upstream you know, vendor that you're getting services from. And uh, and if you happen to find one that you trust and that you think is great, fine, but don't, you know, use them as a knowledge resource, right? Use them for advice on secure configuration. Use them for escalation support, but don't ever think you're going to risk transfer to them because that's not how this works. Just doesn't work that way. And now you understand why Converge knock and sock is the thing. And now you understand why outsourcing to a third party to do some, you know, little siloed activity doesn't really work at all. And, you know, I'm speaking as somebody who has done converge knock and sock since about 2009. And like, and I'm not talking about like I've outsourced this. No, no, it's, it's me. It's me and my team doing converge knock and sock since about 2009. 
And, you know, do we run 24 seven? Nope. Do we need to? Nope. I have yet to ever encounter a business who wants 24 seven sock and who's unwilling to pay for it. So in the realm that they actually have a requirement for 24-7 sock, could we offer it? Yup. But they're going to pay for it. The same as the same sort of requirement when it comes into 24-7 knock or 24-7 help desk. And 24-7 help desk, I think, is a bit of a joke anyways, because 24-7 help desk is, a, is typically like a, a glorified answering service. You know, you're not going to get first call, first contact to the engineers when you're, do, you know, you're calling after five. That's just not going to happen. I don't care what company it is. It's, that's just, it's ridiculous. And at the end of the day, what does the customer actually want in terms of an experience? Well, they want first contact problem resolution. Well, when we're talking about very complex scenarios, they're not going to get that first contact problem resolution unless they're talking to the engineers. You know, it's going to be the people that have understanding of the network and the cloud and the systems and you know all of the the bits and pieces and factors and so forth. It's not going to be somebody who only has the ability to reset passwords. Okay. So this stuff's really complicated. And, and I did this particular show for those of you that have asked me questions about this particular topic and uh, we're really seeking some clarity, clarity around it. And I hope it's uh, helpful.